Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we sometimes so lightly take your great name on our lips, and it's easy for us to uh, grow distracted or grow numb, to be forgetful, or to just be presumptuous. The name of Jesus has changed everything, the power, the majesty, the glory, the grace, the goodness, the things that you have expressed. Father, sending your son to be the savior of the world, to be our savior. We are just so grateful. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that as we are looking in the Gospel of Mark, you would open our hearts. You reveal to us what's in our hearts and you reveal to us the beauty and wonder and majesty of our Savior. We offer our time, Father, to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, today is significant for a couple of reasons. One is Super Bowl, and I have no idea which team I'm rooting for. I'll find out during the game, because uh, neither one's my team, and I, I think I know who I'm rooting for, but sometimes you do that and go, no, I think I'm actually rooting for these guys, so we'll find out. Um, that's the lesser of uh, significances this, this morning. This morning is also the last Sunday Fred Wright will be with us, and he's been with us for 53 years. So Fred was an educator. I would have been probably in your classroom 53 years ago, Fred. That's a long time. So grateful for the... <laughs> Thank you. And you are always welcome here. Fred's moving out to the Inland Empire to be closer to family, so if you haven't had a chance to show your love, please do so. Um, just a dear, dear friend and a great, great part of our family. We will miss you, but we love you, and we're grateful that you have this opportunity. Um, if you have your Bible, would you go ahead and open to Mark chapter 3, please? And um, as, as we get going, I, I want to talk about um, our vital signs, because I think that's what this passage is ultimately going to focus us on. Now, if uh, you ever have the privilege of, and I put privilege in scare quotes, uh, if you have the privilege of being taken by an ambulance somewhere, um, when the paramedics or the EMTs or the fire department, whoever happens to be first on the scene, when they first show up, before they put you in the ambulance, they're going to evaluate some things. Um, they're going to, there's going to be probably two people working with you and everyone else is going to gather around and, and fill the room, but there's going to be somebody who's looking you in the face, asking you all kinds of questions. How are you feeling? Uh, assessing whether you're actually mentally competent and if that's, if you're functioning well that way and also finding out what's going on. I don't feel well. There's this, there's that. I don't know. Uh, maybe you have clarity uh, that it's, it's a pain here and you can describe it in detail. Maybe you're not quite sure or something's just off. But this person will be asking you questions to try to discern what's going on. At the very same time, somebody else is going to be doing things to you. They're going to roll up your sleeve and the first thing they're going to do is put a blood pressure cuff on you. And they're going to measure your blood pressure. They're going to listen to your heart. They're going to check your pulse. They're going to find out what... What's going on, right? And, and if, they, if they look at you and you say, I feel miserable, something's terribly wrong, and they say, well, uh, your, your blood pressure is 105 over 62, your heart rate is 54 beats per minute, and your pulse is steady, they might even put an oximeter on you and say, and your oxygen is at 98%, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna say, I, I'm not sure what's, what's wrong, we can check that out, you can go to the doctor, you can go to the hospital, 
but your life is not in imminent danger. So we're good. If you want us to take you, we'll take you. If you want to take yourself, that's fine. Let us know. Right? And what they're doing is they're looking below the surface of even the presenting symptoms to say, what's really going on inside? And if, if, if you're engaging with any level of uh, coherence, they can assess your, you know, you're obviously not having a massive stroke or something like that. And if they can see that your heart is steady, it's faithful, it's doing what it's supposed to do, the blood's getting where it's supposed to get, and it's, it's, uh, your, your oxygen's good, then there's not a concern that in that immediate moment, something drastic's gonna happen, right? They've checked your vital signs. They're looking below everything else that's going on and saying, let's, let's get to the, literally, let's get to the heart of the issue and make sure you're okay and then we'll kind of work our way out from there, and then we can look at other things. In this morning's passage, Jesus actually does that. He kind of gets uh, to the heart of the issue. He strips away other things and says, let's look at what's really going on inside. And uh, it continues the flow of the book of Mark. So we're gonna read the first 12 verses of chapter three. We're gonna focus on the first half of that passage. The overall flow is gonna continue the very same themes. You'll see that as we read through there. Uh, there's this uh, growing notoriety that Jesus has because he's doing miraculous things. He's teaching in an extraordinary way. The crowds keep coming. The crowds keep growing. There's also this attempt by Jesus to kind of tamp down the publicity that he's getting. Not because their uh, conclusions are wrong, but because the implications of their conclusions are wrong. If, if they believe that he's the Messiah, if, if they understand who he is, they're gonna run with that in their own direction. And so he's trying to slow that train down to say, let me get ahead of that. So in, in this particular passage, for instance, as this happened several times in Mark, demons start recognizing him and calling it out, and he says, be quiet. Be quiet, I don't want that to be talked about right now. Not that it's not true, I just don't want that to be talked about because then people are gonna get excited for all the wrong reasons. So that goes on in this passage. We see that Jesus continues to reveal his power and authority. He does powerful acts and he actually uh, exercises authority even over the Sabbath day, which is a pretty, pretty staggering thing for somebody to do. And it, it creates conflict. We see that that conflict, that theme of conflict with religious leaders is growing because the Pharisees um, are getting more and more upset at him. So many of the themes that Mark is developing continue to develop through this passage. Mark is leading us forward. He's, he's not letting anyone really identify who Jesus is except for the demons and he shuts them down, right? Because he wants this growing sense of who is this guy to be kind of the, the storyline. Now, Mark's readers know who Jesus is, but he's taking them back to that drama so that they can respond afresh, right? So who is this guy, really? And once we understand who he is, then wow, what does that mean? How do we respond? That's where Mark, on the whole, is taking us, and this morning's passage will continue that flow. But we're gonna dive into a couple of very uh, specific things in this passage that I think will help it be um, relevant to us in, in some fresh ways. So if you have your Bible, just follow along with me in uh, Mark chapter three, starting in verse one. It's talking about Jesus. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. This is almost certainly in Capernaum. That's where he's been this whole time. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see what he would do, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, that's the, that's the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum sits on the lake. So it's, this is not like this big journey that's like, all right, guys, we've got to leave here and, and travel three days to get to the sea. It's like, let's go out the door, march 100 paces. Let's just go down to the lake shore, get a new setting here, maybe get some distance from what's been going on. So Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. All right, so Jesus uh, does this miracle in the synagogue, and there's conflict that comes from that to the point that now the Pharisees go out and they put a hit out on him. They literally are looking to have him killed. And they're, they're actually scheming with other groups to get this done. Jesus goes out and he's on the side of the lake there and, and his presence is magnetic and so people are coming from all over the place and they've actually flocked to the area uh, and, and when it describes it, it's like everyone, not every, every single person, but from all over the region of Galilee, that's their immediate um, province, right? So that'd be saying, you know, Jesus uh, left Redemption Hill Church and he went down to the Whitwood Shopping Center and people from all over LA County started showing up. And then it says people from Judea as well, which is the it's, it's one of the provinces south of there where Jerusalem is, and so it's like people, and people from all over Orange County showed up, and from San Diego. And then it starts working its way around the Dead Sea. The Idumea is, a, is an updated, in their day, a word for Edom. So that would have been south of the Dead Sea and east of the Dead Sea. That's the ancient Edomite peoples. They, they had kind of gotten absorbed and there was a, this new group of people called the Idumeans. Herod the Great was actually Idumean, not technically Jewish. He married a Jewish woman, but he's Idumean. Um, so people from all over that area are coming from east of the Jordan. That picks up the rest of the modern day Jordan. Um, people from all over there. People from Tyre and Sidon, those are two ancient important cities on the Mediterranean coast. So it's like people from everywhere are showing up and, and they're excited and Jesus has worked miracles and, and they've seen him heal and they're suffering and they want healing themselves and so they're, they're clamoring and, and they're pressing close hoping that even if I can touch him, even if I can touch him, maybe something will happen and, and there are stories where actually that, that is one of the means that Jesus does work miracles and healings. So they're just trying to crowd around him. He turns to his disciples and says, guys, get a boat ready. They're gonna squash me here. And uh, 
It could be that it's an escape boat, that's possible. Um, actually, the, the way the boat's described is more likely it's just, I just need some space here. I, I'll minister to these people, but they're gonna shove me into the water. So if I, if I need to, I can just get in the boat, I can shove out you know, 20 feet, and then, then they're all on the shoreline, I can talk to them, we can do the ministry stuff, and I don't get crushed and people can, the pandemonium subsides, and we can do something significant. And while this is going on, there are demon-possessed people that are being brought, and whenever a demon comes within a visible distance of Jesus, it freaks out. Because the demon knows, it's, it's unclear whether they know exactly who he is, but they know exactly who he is. He is the representative from God. He's the one with power. He's the one with authority. And that terrifies them. And they also understand that they are under his authority. So they respond to that. And so he tamps down the bad PR. First off, it's probably not a good idea that the demons are talking about who you are and praising you. That's not really the, 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 the source of witness that you'd like to have. And, and, and more to the point of the Gospel of Mark, he, he's tamping it down with everyone because everyone's expectations are gonna get in the way of his ministry. And so he's like, don't, don't run off with this. I'm not that great conqueror coming in yet. I have to do something first, and you've got all this agenda for me, and I'm, I'm coming in in this quiet and humble way, and, and uh, this is actually more important at the moment, and, and don't, don't run wild with your imaginations. I'm not gonna do what you expect. So he, he tries to keep that kind of pressed down. Hey, that's how it fits into the flow of Mark. That kind of recaptures some of the themes we've been looking at. But I think there's a couple of things that are well worthy of slowing down and considering this morning with respect to what's going on here and, and with respect to our own hearts, right? And that's in the story of the, the man with the paralyzed hand. Um, it's interesting to note that in this moment, Jesus does something unusual. First off, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus does a healing when he's not asked to. He takes the initiative. That's interesting, there's something going on here. And when he sees the man who has the disabled hand, he knows what's going through everyone's mind, right? He's the healer, is he gonna heal? And he also knows that there's this growing resentment on the part of some key leaders who are saying this man isn't doing what he's supposed to do, he's not following the rules, and if he heals on the Sabbath, he is so out of line. And so they're watching him, deliberately looking for an opportunity to attack, right? And he knows this is going on. Now, here's a guy who has a need that Jesus wants to meet. There's a number of different ways he could meet it. First off, it isn't life-threatening. And it, it's almost certain that he's had this malady for some time. So while it's nice to relieve the suffering immediately, he could have said, hey, uh, meet me at such and such an address at sundown, right? The Sabbath is over. I will love to heal you. Let's do that. Or he could have taken the man even off to the side in a quiet way, on the, you know, even in the, in the synagogue, and just said, hey, come over here, let's talk, do the thing, and, and leave people kind of, it's, it's not this big spectacle, but instead what he says is, hey, guy, come here. And literally he says, stand up in the middle. He is deliberately picking a fight. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't done that. There's been fights with the um, religious leaders over their 
their wrong understanding and their wrong emphasis, but it's, it's really kind of originated with them. Jesus now picks the fight, and that's gonna be really important for us understanding his heart in a minute. But what he wants to do is he wants to highlight this. So he wants everyone looking, he wants everyone seeing, he's taking all of the, the mystery out, but he's increasing the drama. It's like, yes, I'm going to heal this guy, watch. And then when he heals him, well, look at, look at how he engages the, the Pharisees. It, it, we, it doesn't call them Pharisees right in the beginning, it just says they watched Jesus. But if you look in chapter two, the last section that Craig was preaching through last week, it's talking about the Pharisees, verse, 30, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, and then there's the argument, and then as this scene comes to its conclusion, verse six, it's the Pharisees who go out and immediately hold counsel with the Herodians how to, how to kill Jesus. So it's really clear that he's got the Pharisees in mind, and he's creating this drama specifically with them in mind. So he says to the man, verse three, come here, or stand, literally stand here in the middle, And he said to them, that's the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Now they're the purest party. They're the ones who are supposed to be really digging into the word of God. So he's asking them a biblical interpretation question. Is it right to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? That's actually a conversation that was talked about. And all of the rabbis were wrestling with that, and, and there was one area that they were in, in, in pretty solid agreement, and that was if you're going to do something that is literally life-altering, life-and-death kind of thing, then that supersedes the Sabbath. We all grant that. Now, the Pharisees would look at this guy and say, but he, this isn't life and death, right? You could do it tomorrow just as easily as today, and it's really not going to make that big of a difference. So you shouldn't do it. But then Jesus ups the ante. It kind of goes, goes really uh, strong, actually, at this point. Is it lawful to do life or death? Is it or, or to uh, do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now, he's just ele- elevated the conversation, and I think that's because he knows what's going on in their hearts. Right? Um, there's nothing life or death about this man. It's, it's massively um, impeding his daily living. It it is affecting his quality of life really significantly. But he's not gonna die. He's fine, as far as that goes. And Jesus immediately ups the ante from saying, is it good to do good or harm? Should you kill or should you save life? And that seems like it's disjunctive, but I, I think what he's doing, he's actually beginning to expose their hearts. He's subtly shifted from talking about the man before him to talking about them. Because by the end of this story, on the Sabbath, they will be plotting his assassination. And he's beginning to peel away the layers of their heart to open them up, to say, look at what's going on in there. Well, they're silent. They have nothing to answer. He's, he's bested them rhetorically, yeah, but they also just are unwilling. They're unwilling to take the bait. They're unwilling to engage the conversation. They are unwilling for the sake of this man who is deeply impaired 
to even consider anything outside of what they've already concluded and their agenda has nothing to do with caring for anybody. It has everything to do with beating Jesus. And when Jesus sees that, look at, look at the language. It's, it's actually really, really strong, especially because we don't have a ton of emotion language um, about Jesus. Uh, it's not, I mean, there's, there's plenty in there, but it's not like it's the main um, thing that we experience. But it says he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus is really upset because they have hard hearts. I think that's a really critical thing for us to look at. I think that's one of the things that Mark wants us to focus on, is to say as Jesus is, is, is continuing to move forward, as he's continuing to show himself to be the, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that we're all responsible to, the one we should all respond to, there's different responses people have. Look at these people here. They're the ones who should be in the right, and yet they've let their hearts grow hard. And I think in that, Mark is giving us an invitation to say, what about, what about my heart? He's saying, why don't you put on the spiritual blood pressure cuff? Why don't you take the pulse? Why don't you put on the spiritual oximeter? Let's see what's going on inside. Take your vital signs and say, what's your heart really doing? What's really going on? Because these guys here were the ones who looked right. They looked good. The Pharisees were the purity and faithfulness party. Right? They lived in a culture that was scattered all over the place, and they were the ones who said, hey, follow us. This is how to do it. We need to return to God. We need to live according to his covenant. We need to be faithful, we need to trust him, we need to be holy, we need to be all the things he's called us to be. Because if, when we do that, then he will act. And all these other ideas that are floating around are death, they're destroying us. Don't do that, turn away from all of that stuff, turn to God, that was the Pharisees' fundamental message. Pretty good message, huh? If you just leave it there, it's a great message. But Jesus is exposing them and saying, yeah, but somewhere along the way, your hearts grew hard and everything's lost now. Everything's, everything's gone, gone sideways. You guys think you're the truth and purity party in the midst of a world of compromise and collaboration. That's how you present yourself. But I'm here to say something's gone wrong in your hearts and that's really not the case if you look very deep at all. And they're, they're, uh, they've got an agenda that is moral, right? They've got an agenda that is theological. They've got an agenda that is cultural. They've got an agenda that's political. For them, it's all woven together. All of those things work together. We will show everyone what it is to live faithfully before the Lord according to his covenant. And as we do that, the Messiah will come, will transform our culture, will rescue us from these oppressors and set up his kingdom Right, so their heart is about right truth, right doctrine. Their heart is about um, right behavior, right character, right morality. Their heart is about our culture's fallen apart. We need to do something to change it. Their heart is about getting things back on track politically. That's who they are. And they're passionate about those things. And yet in the midst of those things, their hearts grow hard. And they're completely out of step with God. And I, I, I think there's probably even some things about how they approach those agenda items that both 
show their hearts are hardening and continue the hardening process, right? Because they are selective and lopsided. They're selective in what they focus on, what they listen to, how they obey God, how they read his word, and they're lopsided in what they emphasize. And that's shown actually really specifically with the conversation about the Sabbath. Because they're saying, you can't do this on the Sabbath. This constitutes work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But their whole system was literally their whole system. If you want to, you can turn over to Exodus chapter 20. If not, I'll read it to you. It's the Ten Commandments. We're not going to read all of them. We're just going to read number four, right? If God makes a top ten list, uh, guess what's on there? Well, God does make a top ten list. And on there is the Sabbath day, right? That's number four. And here's what he says about the Sabbath in um, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, it's set apart from all the other days. Six days you'll labor and do all your work. The seventh day is a day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Right now, if you read Deuteronomy, which restates it, Deuteronomy chapter five says almost exactly the same thing, only it shifts the focus. In, in Exodus, the focus is on rest. Remember God, the creator. And in Deuteronomy, it shifts the focus to say rest. Remember God, the redeemer. You were enslaved and, and now I want you to rest. And he doesn't give a lot of detail. He says, don't work. Well, what does that mean? Well, he makes it really clear you know, major work like you would normally do. He involves the animals and the servants. Don't do that, right? But it can't be, there's nothing you can do because you couldn't get out of bed. Sitting up is work. Putting on a shirt is work. Walking to the bathroom is work, right? You, obviously, he doesn't mean that. So the challenge came when people are trying to say, well, I want to do this right. Where are the lines? That's a good question, but it's an inherently dangerous question because it's easy to then start focusing on the lines instead of the point, and that's what they've done. And the the Old Testament gives us a number of other things. It it says don't carry burdens, don't carry burdens on animals. That seems to, again, be something more than don't put your wallet in your pocket and walk down the street. Um, When they're talking about manna in Exodus, it says, hey, gather all your manna on on Friday, because on Saturday, don't, don't go out of your house to get your manna. Right, so there's something about going out and doing the normal work. You don't do that. It says don't kindle a fire on Saturday. Don't, don't do those things. Later on, uh, Jeremiah and, um, and Nehemiah and um, Amos, there, there's some other places in the Old Testament where they begin to flesh that out a little bit, but it's still very limited. Right? Don't, don't come and do commerce. Don't, don't make wine. Don't, don't harvest crops. Don't sell. Don't buy don't do life as normal, shift gears. Shift gears to rest and to focus on God. The Pharisees took that, and the rabbis took that, and they started to expand. 
And they started to give rule after rule after rule after rule. You can carry this kind of load this far under these circumstances, but you can't carry that kind of load. And, and what they're doing is they're adding a lot to God's word. Initially, their intentions, no doubt, are good. What they're trying to do is how do we apply this, right? That's what we do in every good sermon. That's what you do in every good, every good um, moment of, of meditation where you're doing your devotions. It's like, okay, what does this practically mean in my life? That's really important, but that's not the same thing as this is what God says. And as we do that, we have to be really careful. And somewhere along the way, they lost their footing. They became more about their application than they were about God's word. They came, became more about their understanding and their system than they were actually about God's word. When Jesus comes into the, the, into the, in the synagogue and, and is gonna heal this guy, there is literally nothing in the Old Testament that says he can't do that. That's their idea. The Sabbath says don't work. Doesn't define it in great detail and it certainly doesn't call out healing somebody. So Jesus, by the way, is continuing to show he's actually Lord of the Sabbath, so my interpretation of it is right and I can, I can actually use it how I want because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. It's here to serve me and by the way, the Sabbath is here to serve you too. That's true, but he's actually raising questions that are viable and they just shut them down because they have they have locked in on their own ideas. And they're not really listening to God. In the New Testament, when the uh, disciples see Jesus taken away into heaven, in Acts chapter one, it says they go back into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, it's a Sabbath day's journey. That's just using it as a description. The Sabbath day's journey is one of these other rules that said you can walk, walk 2,000 cubits, not anything more. Well, that was a rule from the, the rabbis. That was part of their, their uh, tradition. That had nothing to do with scripture. Right? It, it, it doesn't appear to be arbitrary. It just appears to be quirky. It appears that they got that from Joshua chapter three, where Joshua is, is heading into battle, and the, the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to lead the people before is they go into the promised land and they're told to wait back 2,000 cubits. And so apparently the rabbis are reasoning, well, if, if, the, if the presence of God is 2,000 cubits away, then it must be okay to go that far because you gotta come into the presence of God. Like, well, that's cute, but it, it's not what it's saying. And what happened to them, apparently, is they just got, got latched onto these things and, and they started getting more and more picky. Lost sight of what God actually said for what they wanted that to mean. And their hearts, their hearts grew hard. And Jesus is very upset with them because what they've done is here's a real need that should move their hearts. And this man is a tool now for them. He's a nobody. They don't care because they're all about, here's what we think, and you gotta do what we think, because something's happened to harden their hearts. Okay, now that's where I think it's really a critically helpful passage, because it can cause us to say, wait a minute, is my heart grown hard somewhere? Is there a stiffening? Are there things that are more important to me than what you actually say, God? And in the Pharisees' case, they're actually claiming that what they're holding to is God's, and it's not. It's their application of God. How often do we do that? 
right? Their issues were, you know, their, their whole focus was moral, theological, cultural, and political. We just look at those four categories and say, are there places where I am prone to kind of run way further than Scripture goes and lock in on that and allow my heart to harden around those issues? Morality um, really matters. But it's amazing to me how easy it is for us to um, get locked in on some aspect and start picking fights. There was a really prominent Christian leader this week who's very profoundly biblical. And he made a statement that was pastoral, right? Somebody in his congregation was wrestling with specifically how do I apply the biblical morality to this situation in my life? No compromise whatsoever of this is not true, don't read it that way. It was all, yes, that's exactly what God says, that is exactly right, we have to toe the mark, and yet we have to do that in a sensitive way. Here's what I would suggest. And it created an absolute firestorm where people are distancing themselves from him, where people are criticizing him and attacking him online, where, where, where groups that he was associated with have cut off the association. And I'm just thinking, well, wait, 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 wait. Now, he may or may not have gotten the application point right. In fact, he even said, look, there are people within our church, leaders within our church, who would look at this a little differently about what's the best way to respond. But there's no question that his view is absolutely orthodox. It's about what do we do to apply it, and and all of these other things are coming into play. Things that matter, but they've been elevated. And he's just under attack. That can happen. I was thinking... You know, doctrinally, I was talking, this is many years ago, but it it blew my mind. It still sticks with me. Many years ago, a friend was talking about a church that they had grown up in that had split over a doctrinal issue. I'm like, oh, what was the issue? And they, they, they said it to me, and I've been racking my brain all week, I can't even remember it, because it's actually not an issue. It was something so trivial and so secondary, it didn't even make sense to me in the moment, and I can't even remember what it was. Now, I certainly don't know everything about theology and the issues, but I, you know, I've read this through dozens of times and I've taught and studied for decades and I have two master's degrees and that puts me at the lower end of education amongst most of the groups that I'm sitting in talking about the word of God. I don't think it's fundamentally an issue of naivete on my part though. I didn't realize that was an issue. I think it's, that actually isn't an issue. That's crazy. People are yelling at each other and cutting off relationship and splitting apart a church over something that is completely irrelevant. How? These are people who love Jesus. Well, somewhere along the way, something got flipped. They started to be more selective and lopsided, and they hardened. And if that happened to the Pharisees, who actually probably started out on the right path, and if that happened to people around me, does that happen to me too? Do I, do I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable so much that you can't even recognize what God is saying? Sometimes. That's without touching issues of culture and politics. There's a lot that we could say there too. A lot of fighting that goes on that has nothing, 
nothing to do with the core of Christianity. Are we talking about who God is and what the gospel is? Are we taking some other thing that's like four steps removed and then applying it? Now, it doesn't mean that doesn't matter, it does. But the dynamics of our hearts, that's what we gotta watch. Because we, I think, are as human as they are. And we are as prone to have things kinda harden us and in the, in the process, we can find ourselves all worked up over the wrong things and not really, not really lining up with God very well at all. Do I have any hobby horses? There's, you know, if that's your hobby, ride your horse, that's fine. But don't think it's this mighty battle steed that you charge into battle with and mow down the enemy with, right? This is an area of particular interest and passion for me. That doesn't mean, and, and it may be, it should be, it ought to be, it must be rooted in things that matter to God, but this may not be the central axis of what he's doing right now. And I wanna be careful. I wanna be careful about, about doubling down on things that are not actually that central. Is that going on in me? Let, let the Spirit of God search you and, and point it out, because it could be a whole variety of places it shows up. Let me give you a couple of things that I think would be helpful to check our vital signs. Because as we look at these Pharisees, it seems like there's two key things that Jesus is, is unearthing. You have a humility issue and you have a humanity issue. Right? So, good question for me is how's my humility? How's my humanity? Humility, right? I am not Jesus. I am becoming more like him, and I am here to represent him. So I don't say that and then just say, well, whatever. It's like, no, no, I take that seriously. I speak truth, and I live on purpose, and I don't back down and compromise. That would be failure on my part but I am not yet fully like Jesus. My mindset isn't fully his, my perspective isn't fully his, my understanding of the word isn't fully his, my understanding of the world isn't fully his. In other words, there's an overlap between his life and mine, but they're not yet congruent. They will be when I'm face to face with him. Every moment prior to that, doesn't it make sense that there would be a little bit of tempering to my life and a little bit of modesty that says, I wanna keep growing and learning. I wanna be open, not to just any random thing that comes out, that's crazy, but I do wanna be open to you, God. The Pharisees aren't even listening to the God they so much love, or so they think. I don't want to fall in that place. Their hearts get hard. I need to develop a good self-righteousness meter too. The Pharisees are very self-righteous. They know, you know, you, you can't teach me. And they would never say that out loud, 
but that's, that's really how they're living. They're very self-righteous. Where am I self-righteous? You may say, I'm not, in which case I would suggest this might be the place. Because the other eight billion of us on this planet have to battle that. We all have tendencies towards self-righteousness in one place or another. That's a danger zone. It's like, is my heart hardening? Am I still teachable? Am I still humble? Right, they have, a hum- they have a humility problem, and they also have a humanity problem. There's a guy right in front of them who is hurting, whose life has been deeply traumatized, and they don't care. Wow. From a distance, we look at that and go, that's crazy. And yet, how many of us actually fall into situations like that sometimes? Like, ah. Oh. Yeah, these people are a means to an end. They're a tool that I use. You know, it doesn't really matter because I've got this agenda that I've got, right? Where's the humanity is a good question to be asking myself a lot. Do I have more grimace or grace in my life? Right, am I I God's police force to the world or am I part of his search and rescue squad? Those are, I think, really critical questions. And it's not that, not that I can't and shouldn't and mustn't stand firm. It's about my heart. The very act of seeking to live righteously in a world that has increasingly lost its mind puts me at risk for my own sinfulness to get things all twisted up inside. That's what happened to the Pharisees. And Jesus is pulling that out. He's saying, whoa, Guys, picks a fight, actually. Hey, stand in the middle. Let's watch, everyone watch this. He's not just healing that guy. He's looking to heal everyone else. Because they've got a heart issue. Now, as we look at them, you know, the moral, doctrinal, political, we can all relate to that, I'm sure. But there's also something else that's going on with these guys that's helpful. There's a deeper issue. We know that because when things don't go the way they want, They go out on the Sabbath, which is the very thing they don't want to profane, and they plot a murder. I think that profanes the Sabbath. And they do that with the Herodians, right? The Pharisees are the ones, we won't compromise, we won't get mixed up with Rome, we're gonna stand pure, we're gonna stand firm, and we're gonna gonna do that conspicuously. The Herodians are the household of Herod, the ultimate compromiser. These are the ones that are the political animals that are, that are just uh, pragmatic in dealing with Rome, and, 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 and what, what does that mean? How could the Pharisees even have any kind of conversation with them? Well, because the real issue is much deeper than what they say it is. The political, the, the moral, the, the theological, the cultural, those are the presenting issues. Yes, those matter, but what really matters to the Pharisees is themselves. At the very heart, Jesus is a threat. They're gonna lose their power. They're gonna lose the comfortable lives that they have and the position that they have and the control that they have. And so they will work with the people who are the polar opposites of everything they say they stand for. Because it's not actually ultimately standing for those things, it's standing for me. Now, when I think about it through that lens, that actually kind of broadens it out to a whole lot of stuff. Where do I try to dictate terms to the universe. This is what needs to happen. 
This is how it needs to happen. It's very human, but that's exactly how we got to where we are. Right? There's a hardening of my heart that's gone on. I was in Costco a couple days ago, last minute shopping for a Super Bowl party, right? It's a great time to go to Costco. Well, it's horrible because of the lines, but all of the samples are good. There's not like any hand soap that you can try or there's this special you know, vitamin. It's like, give me something that will, that will clog my arteries now. And they do in abundance. They got all these wonderful things. And so there's, you know, you go through and you get your samples and there's one, I, I, I don't even know what it was. It looked like some sort of nacho something. It's like, wow, that looks good. And, and as David and I are coming up towards it, there's this little kid that comes up and grabs all of the samples and runs off. The, the sample hog, you know, you've experienced that. And I'm just, I'm indignant, right? The boy's moral formation is defective. He's just grabbing for himself. Now, it would be nice if my real issue was a concern for his moral formation. But my real issue is a gap in my own moral formation. Dude, I wanted some of that. Get, I, it was, it, he was robbing me of my delectable experience. Yeah, he was. The nerve of that little brat, right? It exposed my own heart. And I didn't get any because she wasn't fast enough on the restock and we were doing other stuff. So it's like, oh man, missed out. My life will forever be a question mark of what would that have been like? And that moment was taken away from me by that boy. (sighs) But in reality, I mean, that's a silly example. We can all relate. But in reality, there's a lot of bigger examples too. Or when you boil it down, it's really easy for us to be self-preserving, self-seeking at the expense of almost anything else. That was the hardening of heart that had taken place. The Pharisees had a valid agenda. They had many good insights. Along the way, they put the emphasis in the wrong place. And along the way, somewhere, their own hearts became just about them. That is the only credible understanding that makes sense to me of them immediately going out and plotting his death with their mortal enemies. It's not about their agenda. It's about them. It's about their power. It's about their comfort. Wow, when it gets that personal, it's like, whoa, okay, Lord. One of the things as I've been working on this message is I've just been praying, you know, Lord, where's my heart hardening? Please show me that. The other thing, which I'll just touch on as we wrap up, is to put our eyes on Jesus. This is a story of great compassion. First, there's compassion for the man. And he's willing to raise ire and, and, and deal with consequences just to care for this man. But there's actually a deep compassion for the Pharisees. It's easy to overlook. And that's the same compassion that we find in the story of the prodigal son. Where Jesus, it came for everyone. Right? And these, these hardened Religious leaders, he loves them every bit as much as the guy who's got the disabled limb. (coughs) Excuse me. And their need's actually greater. Remember a a few weeks ago when Jesus' ministry was really taking off in Capernaum and Peter came to him, this is the end of chapter one. Peter comes to him and says, hey, everyone's looking for you. He says, yeah, I know, we need to go. Because... Because why? There's all these people that need healing and demons that need to be cast. This is great. No, no, we need to go. I need to proclaim the message around everywhere. That's why I came. That's Jesus' compassion. 
right? A heart of compassion needs to be the heart of Jesus' compassion, which says, I wanna see everyone and everything blessed and transformed as much as is in my power. But the presenting issues are only one of the issues. There's a deeper issue that underlies everything and it has to do with our hearts. And Jesus takes the time to pick the fight to give them a chance to respond. He asks them the questions and he waits for the answer. And he looks around and that's why he is so grieved and so angry because they're unwilling to engage. He is pulling that out. He is surfacing the hardness of their heart. That's a compassion of his. And this morning, (coughs) excuse me, my prayer is that he'll show us that compassion. Is my heart stiffening in any place? Am I hardening? Am I focusing on secondary things as if they were primary? Am I ultimately using whatever as a, as a mask for just selfishness? Am I able to be taught new things by God? Am I always picking a fight? Or am I actually, am I God's search and rescue squad, working with him on that? What's, what's going on in your heart? Let the Holy Spirit surface whatever it is he wants to surface. And then the question is, What are you gonna do with that? That's a compassion. If if he is pressing in, that's his compassion. He's saying, hey, let's, let's open up your heart here. Let's let this be what it's supposed to be. Let me, let me transform you. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come, we'll take our offering. Lord, I am, um, I'm grateful for your work in my life, and I pray, Lord, that you would continually stir me, that you would highlight where my own heart is stiff and hard, where I've allowed things to get confused, and I've put the emphasis in the wrong place, or I've um, shut down your work in a key area, or I've allowed my compassion to take a back seat to my comfort, or I don't know, Lord, there's all kinds of things. I just ask that you would surface those. Not just for me, but for all of us. May we experience your grace and your love through your convicting work. And may we bring our hearts to you and say, here, here they are, Lord. They're, they're broken, they're, they're human, they're messed up. We need your help, but here they are. Grow us and change us, Lord. Bless us and transform us. Show us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.